1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are the sheep of your pasture. We are your children. We are the honored guests invited to your table. And God, again, to reiterate what Don said, thank you that we come to a table, not an altar. We don't approach you as those who need a sacrifice to be here. Our sacrifice has been given, and he was perfect, and he satisfied you. Therefore, you are well satisfied with us because you have placed us in him. Now, fathers, we come to your word, which is holy and perfect. We ask for your spirit's help to understand and to do the things written herein. And Father, if there be anybody here who does not know Jesus as their Savior, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, raise them to new life, give them the gift of faith, that they might repent of their sins and claim Jesus Christ as theirs forevermore. Would you help us all, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, this is a uh, very interesting passage. Um, as, as I've gotten into it through the week, I won't say it did like a 180 degree turn from what I was expecting. Cause I come into a passage and I, I think, okay, this is that passage and it's doing this. And, uh, but it at least did a 45 degree turn cause it's a little different than what I expected. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm excited to get into it. So verse 13, of course, is where we'll start. Now, who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good. Now keep in mind where we've been, okay? Peter has been working to help his readers and us to know how to conduct themselves as those who are different. Those who stand out due to their behavior from the corrupt culture around them. As followers of Jesus, they and we are to stick out like Jesus did. And to follow the logic, we ask ourselves the question, how did that sticking out, how did that being different work out for Jesus? They killed him, right? And Jesus had told his disciples, including Peter, on multiple occasions that what the world did to Jesus, the way the world treated Jesus is what they would do and how they would treat his followers after him. So, after starting his letter with this beautiful description of God saving them, in that first chapter particularly, Peter started giving details of how his readers were to live out what God had worked into them and how they could stick out, how they could be different. 
citizens to the government, servants to masters, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Then last week, Peter moved from specific roles of individuals to all of you, he said, giving instructions then to every believer. And he went through a list of calling them to brotherly love through unity of mind, sympathy, a tender heart, and a humble mind with that chiastic structure we looked at, pointing to the importance of brotherly love in all of that. He then went on to say that they were not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling and also calling on them to bless those who do or speak evil against them. And then he ended it by reassuring them and us that in all of this that God's eyes were on them and us for our good and that God's face was against the evildoers. So now today, that thought is followed up by Peter reinforcing his reasoning for them to do good to those who do and say evil against them. And he starts here with this thought in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So if people and when people are doing and speaking evil against you and you bless them and pray for them and desire God's good for them, Will it always work out and be just fine? Will it be like this holy force field that comes up around you that keeps all the bad stuff from happening to you? Well, again, Jesus' life and death show how it can work out, right? You can get crucified, literally. So no, there's no force field. And so we might not want to just bless those who are cursing us because who wants to get hurt or even killed over something like that. Because we all have a survival instinct, right? If I come up to you and try to put my finger in your eye, you're not going to let me do that. We have a self-preservation about ourselves that's built into us. The smart people call it a lizard brain. (laughs) Old Pentecostal pastor I used to work with and go to his church, he called them smart dummies. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. We all have a survival instinct. So, so then what are we to do? Are we still supposed to seek the good of those who are trying to harm us? And the answer is yes. And Peter wants to establish a clear truth here. Whatever harm may come to you from the evil that others do to you, there's no one who can harm you. Let me read that again. Whatever harm may come to you from the evil that others do to you, there's no one who can harm you. It's that force field, right? (laughs) But that don't make any sense. When bad things are happening to you from the evil that others are doing against you for you doing good, who can harm you? Rhetorically, Peter's saying, well, nobody can. But again, that doesn't make any sense. When they harm you, there's nobody that can harm you. When they harm you for doing good, when they do evil against you for your doing good, they can't harm you. We take people to the hospital for saying stuff like that. Because you're like, you didn't make any sense. So what's really going on here? Well, let me start with this zealous for good work stuff. Then we'll work our way back to the question. Peter's scenario is, if you are zealous for what is good. That's the qualifier of the sentence. Alistair Begg points out that the literal reading of that phrase is, if of the good zealots you become, 
which sounds like Yoda. We'll get to Yoda later. I'll mention Yoda later. So what's a zealot? And along with that, what does it mean to be zealous? Well, the Greek word is almost a direct transliteration. It's zelotes. Five times it's in, in the authorized version. And it's translated as zealous five times. One burning with zeal. It's used of God as jealous of any rival and sternly vindicating his control. Most eagerly desirous of, zealous for a thing, to acquire a thing, to be zealous of, to defend and uphold a thing vehemently contending for a thing. That's what it means to be zealous and to be a zealot. So zeal is an eager desire for something, a vehement contending for something. We're all zealots for something or some things. Maybe it's people, a sports team, a food, pepperonis, whatever. People listening for the first time is like, why did he just say pepperonis? <laughs> and it's, 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 it's what our affections are based upon. It's what we like and long for and talk about and feel that flutter in our chest about or that deep-seated, gut-inducing, those are the things that we're, we're zealous for. Well, Peter is calling on his readers and us to eagerly desire and to contend vehemently for the good or what is good. And it's pretty easy to know that the good referred to here lines up with what God says, what God is or what God does, right? The good is God's way or God's ways. The good is citizens subjecting themselves to the government. The good is servants subjecting themselves to their masters and not just the good ones but also to the evil ones. Wives being subject to their own husbands. Husbands living with their wives in an understanding manner as a precious fellow heir of life with themselves. The good is not returning evil for evil, but desiring that your persecutors are blessed by God Himself. That's the good. So, if you are zealous for what is good, if you are good zealots, then what preceded this clause applies to you. And note that. If you're not a zealot for good, it doesn't apply to you. And that clause before this clause was... Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, like we said earlier, it would seem that there are plenty of folks who could actually harm you, even if you are zealous for what is good, right? Again, Peter ended up crucified upside down because he was doing good. So he got harmed, right? So back to our question, what's really going on here? Because Peter seems to be implying that there is no one who can harm you if you are zealous for what is good. If you do good, if you desire good, if you contend earnestly for good to the point of having evil said and done against you, it would seem that plenty of harm can and will come your way. But Peter is showing that whatever harm is done to you is not the ultimate destination for you. Remember last week Peter said that God's eyes are on the righteous and his face is against those who do evil. Well, that is what Peter is following up here and that's what he's pointing at and saying here. When all is said and done, it is the eyes and the face of God that will determine final good or final harm. 
And if you are righteous, His eyes are upon you and His ears are open to your prayer. And so when you stand before Him, no harm will come to you. But if you do not desire good, God's final judgment will be against you, resulting in final, complete, total, eternal harm for you. He's for you, no harm. He's against you, harm. So, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And Peter says, no one. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, obviously, again, in the world, plenty of people can be against us. But if God is for you, nobody against you will stand. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because that's our ultimate good. And the ultimate harm would be separate, would to be separated from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, and here Paul addresses, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds like harm, right? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure... Sure, sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yeah, who is there to harm you? That's the point here. This is not talking about who is there to physically harm your body or to cause you trouble here in this world. Who is there to harm you? If God is for you and you're doing what God has decreed, who can harm you? Ultimately, nobody. So then Peter moves on to address the elephant in the room of, yeah, but what is up if I do suffer? And it does feel like harm now. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, comma, dot, dot, dot. We're going to leave it there right now. And I want to point to the realism of the Bible. Peter's not like an ostrich with his head in the sand, acting like nothing is wrong and that God's people are immune from suffering in the here and now. He starts this verse with, But even if you should suffer. Now please note, this is not a contradiction from him saying there's no one to harm you if you're zealous for God's ways. The word but here could actually be translated as indeed. He's not saying you can't be harmed, but even if you are harmed, it's not a big deal. A big or maybe the big theme of this whole letter is suffering and persecution. Having addressed the eternal and the quote yet to come, Peter now addresses the present time and the here and now. And his realism is set to the awareness of the suffering that does happen for some believers in their earthly sojourn, including himself, including those who are reading his letter. And it's not just hard times or physical illnesses or such, but rather, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. Again, there's a qualification. This is about the hardships that come on followers of Jesus when they're doing God's will and it lands them in trouble with those who oppose the Lord. This suffering is for righteousness' sake. Now, what's that mean? Well, if you look at the early life 
of the church. There's a few instances in Acts 4 and Acts 5. That's very early on in the life of the church because really the church was kind of born in Acts 2. And we see this very thing happening to Peter and the other apostles. I I won't give you the full story, but they'd been arrested a couple of times for preaching in Jesus' name. They were beaten for doing so, which, by the way, they went out and high-fived each other saying, we were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. But they wouldn't stop. The leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin kept saying, stop preaching in Jesus' name. Or we're going to arrest you again, and we're going to beat you, and we're going to make a public spectacle of you if you don't stop. And this is what they said in Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about in his letter. Imprisonment, beatings, trials, being told to shut up all because they were publicly preaching the gospel and teaching the commands and the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you should suffer for things like this, Peter says in verse 14, what's he say? If you should suffer for these things, you will be blessed. That doesn't feel like blessing, right? We said before that Jesus had said basically the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount. And the word here in our passage, blessed is the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, 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 blessed. This is the same word. It's makarios, and it means happy. Happy. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be happy. Why? Because Jesus had said in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, let me get there. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's the point of what Jesus is saying and what Peter's referring to. Listen, God himself is literally keeping score when his people suffer for doing his will and showing his glory. And in keeping that score, he is heaping up rewards in heaven in eternity for those who suffer in the here and now. So they really should be happy. Their account balance in heaven, not of their salvation, but of their rewards, is growing. And they will receive those rewards, not in the here and now, but in eternity, when it really ultimately matters and can't be taken from them. Jesus would say, moth doesn't come in and eat, thieves don't steal, rust doesn't destroy. That's where their rewards are, so they can go, man, this is going to be good when I get there. It's hard. It's bad. I'm struggling now. I'm suffering now. But man, it's going to be great when I get there. They're rejoicing over that. Which is a different mindset, right? Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, Peter goes on to say. And this is the beginning of a thought that will continue into the next verses all the way through the end of our passage today. And he starts the thoughts by addressing them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, who is the them 
those who are causing the suffering in the present age, your persecutors, those speaking or doing evil against you. Last week, we saw Peter tell his readers to pray for those who are persecuting you. To pray for those and to seek their blessing. That's for them. Well, for those being persecuted, Peter says that there is to be no fear of these people. Now, let's be real. If you knew you were going to come here today and there was going to be somebody who was going to beat you for being here, literally, would you fear that person? They had beat you in the past, kind of like the bully on the playground. If you come back here, I'm going to beat you again. I'll be here Sunday morning at 9 o'clock and I'll wait for you to show up. If you show up, I'm going to beat you with a bat. You afraid of that person? I am. But Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So let's be realistic here, right? Why would Peter say this? Well, naturally, you would be afraid of somebody who you know is going to harm you. But Peter says that you shouldn't be, and actually says you don't need to be. And there's the good news. And an indicator that this life that he is talking about is definitely a normal, everyday, just like everybody else kind of life shows that there's a tendency to be afraid. But he says we need not fear those who are doing evil to us and causing us harm. Why? And here's the deal. Because they're not ultimately in charge of the situation. They're not the one calling the shots. If they were, it would be terrifying. But our persecutors are not the ones ultimately calling the shots, even though they think they are, and sometimes it feels like to us that they are. Here's the answer. God is in full control and is governing all that comes our way. Even the suffering and even the people who are plotting and carrying out the evil against us. If we thought for a second they were in control at the door with the bat, and I guess in the moment it looks like they are, but is God asleep while they're standing there at the door? Has God forgotten us? Is God going, oh no, I didn't mean for that to happen. This person's smarter and stronger than I am. That's silly, right? So, Psalm 118.6 says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, does that mean that man can't touch us? Again, force field. No, that's not what it means. It's biblical confidence in the sovereignty of God. And that's what Peter is pointing toward. Have no fear of them, he says, nor be troubled. And that nor be troubled is a clause to emphasize the peace that we are to have in the midst of trouble. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. You don't have to be afraid of those who may harm you, and they may harm you. And you don't need to worry that the world's coming apart when things start to get hard and we're suffering. You have the rock of Christ Jesus to stand upon. You have the very Spirit of God within you and you have the Father's love surrounding you. Church, you as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, you could not be any more secure than you are.
without a force field. Literally. Even or especially in the midst of hard and troubling times, in the throes of suffering at the lowest times of your life, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He doesn't make a detour around the valley of the shadow of death. He's walking through it. And as he walks through it, he fears no evil. We fear no evil. Why? What's the next line of Psalm 23? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. The presence of the Lord in the midst of the situation is our comfort. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That takes turning our eyes off of our situation turning our ears away from the words that we're hearing, even turning our bodies as they're being beaten towards something more than just what's right here. But focusing on the one who was with us in the midst of it. We haven't experienced this kind of persecution. Anybody ever been beaten for righteousness sake in this room? I was about to be embarrassed. Somebody said, I was. Well, I'm sorry. I haven't. We did have a gun pulled on us in Africa one time. Of course, it wasn't for righteousness sake. It's because our, our van driver didn't stop at the border crossing like he was supposed to. Nothing like having a couple of AK-47s pointed at you while you're trying to reason with the van driver to stop. Please stop. I've never been beaten. I've never had to be in a situation. Now, I've, I guess I've been spoken bad against or or somebody didn't like me because of something that I said. And that's going to increase and abound in our day and time. But we've got to be able to turn our eyes, our ears, our lives, our bodies away from just the present situation and know that spiritually speaking, the truth is, I am as secure as I can be. He is with me and He is sovereign over all of these things. Therefore, I can have no fear of them and I don't have to be troubled. And there was a comma at the end of verse 14. So we're going to go on with the thought in verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we came out of verse 14, which was telling us, to know that blessing will follow any suffering that comes our way due to righteous living. And then Peter said that we're to have no fear of those doing evil to us and reiterated that by saying, nor be troubled. So then, what should we do if we're not to be afraid or troubled? Because nature hates a vacuum, right? Don't be afraid or troubled when the situation that you're in is fearful and troubling. Okay, then, so what should I do? But, contrastive conjunction, not this but that, instead of being afraid or troubled, what should we do? Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, don't miss this. 
This little phrase here, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, is a quick reference back to Isaiah 8, verses 13 and 14. Let me, real quick, let me read that to you and then explain this setting. So Isaiah, man, I can't see a lick up here. There we go. This is in Isaiah 8, verses 13 and 14. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now again, we don't have time to fully explain that, but let me just give you the setting of what's going on here. At this time in Isaiah, the southern kingdom of Judah was led by a king named Ahaz. If your name's got a Z in it, it's cool. Ahaz is one of those guys. The Assyrian Empire... Those guys that Jonah hated, remember back when we went through Jonah? The Assyrian Empire, this huge monstrous juggernaut that was taking over the whole world, was on a rampage. And Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, ran the risk of being invaded by the Assyrians. So both the northern kingdom of Israel and the nation of Syria right there around them called on Judah to partner with them to form an I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine kind of alliance. The logic was... Three nations stand a better chance together against the mighty Assyrians than each of them does alone. Which makes good sense, I'd say, right? But God told Isaiah that he would defend Judah and that they were not to ally themselves with other nations, any other nation. Warren Wiersbe says this about this time in the Isaiah passage. Listen, quote, The Jewish political leaders were asking, Is it popular? Is it safe? But the prophet was asking, is it right? Is it the will of God? And then Wiersbe's next sentence is this. When you fear the Lord, you don't need to fear people or circumstances. End of quote. I'm going to read that again. When you fear the Lord, you don't need to fear people or circumstances. Now notice that doesn't say when you fear the Lord, nothing bad happens to you. And I say, wow. And it's no wonder that Peter chose this snippet from Isaiah to quote here. So have no fear of them and be not troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do you see the connection? Judah had reason to be afraid of mighty Assyria. Judah had good common sense cause to join with the foreign nations for help in defending its land and people. But God had other plans. And he counseled his people to trust him in the midst of all that was troubling them and had them afraid. And God was calling on them to not only not be afraid, but also to honor him as holy. Which is the exact same thing that Peter's saying. That's what he's referencing here. Don't be afraid or troubled, but instead in your hearts, in the seat of your thoughts and emotions, in the very core of who you are, there, don't be afraid, rather honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. Now that, that, that's counter to our natural inclinations, right? We're suffering. We see the people who are causing the suffering and naturally we fear them and are troubled. You're walking to the door and dude is standing there with the baseball bat. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Don't just use your common sense. Instead, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
I think our tendency would be to defend ourselves or to try to get out of the situation. Now listen, there are times in the book of Acts where they fled from one city where they were being persecuted to another. So that, that, there's time for that. But in all of it, whether we're in the midst of the persecution or we're fleeing from a persecution to go to somewhere else, in the midst of all of it, our goal is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. And that's an odd command in this situation, it would seem. I think we would say pretty quickly and easily, yeah, Jesus is holy. Yeah, that, that's not a problem. How's that going to fix the do with the baseball bat? What's that got to do with this? And to quote Yoda, everything. If in your heart you honor Christ the Lord as holy, your whole mindset, your whole outlook, your whole life will be different. Why? Because what does he call Christ here? Christ the Lord. Lord means master. Lord means the one who's over the situation. So your outlook is different because you know the one who's in control. To know and show that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is doing all He's doing for His glory and my good does literally change everything. Everything. In peacetime, Christ is in control. In wartime, Christ is in control. Christ is holy in both times. Good times, bad times, flourishing, suffering. Christ is completely devoted to His own glory and my good. And that's the best possible news, truly. So when you are tempted to worry or fear or be troubled, listen, look into your heart and see what's going on there. And if what's in your heart is only self-preservation, you've got to change that. If our goal is only self-preservation, which mine is so many times, I've got to change that. Focus on your heart attitude. Focus on what you're thinking and feeling and direct those thoughts and those feelings to the holiness of Christ as the Lord of everything, including your situation. So don't fear, don't be troubled, but honor Christ as holy in your heart. Do you see Peter's point? Give deference away from the eyes of your head and focus on the eyes of your heart. Focus your very life on the holiness of Christ, on the fact that Christ is Lord, and everything takes on a different perspective, especially when you're tempted to fear or be troubled. And then watch this. Where does Peter go from here? Having... I lost my place. Give me a second. He says, oh, I I didn't finish that thought. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for a hope that is in you. Now, Now what? Now look at what's happened. The believer has turned from fear and being troubled to seeing Jesus and honoring Him as Lord and as holy. And now that attitude has them defending not themselves. But watch this. What are they defending? For a reason, for the hope that is in you. So they've gone from defending themselves to defending their hope in the Lord. 
These people go from fear of their circumstances to standing on truths that hold them fast. And they can then be seen to make a defense to anyone who asks them for a reason for the hope that is in them. You see, when you have hope in the midst of trouble and trials, people want to know why. They want to know the truths that you cling to. They want to know the one who is the truth that you cling to. And your defense is the very person of Christ, your Lord Himself. And so all of a sudden, you're preaching Christ to them. Your defense for the hope that is in you is telling them that Christ is Lord, Christ is holy, and I'm going to honor Him in this situation. So your defense is not, well, I think this is going to work out all right for me because i got a heavenly account where God... And they're like, shut up, I don't want to hear that. But when you start preaching Christ, Him crucified, Him as Lord, Him as glorious, that's the reason for the hope that you have within yourselves. They go from fear of their circumstances to standing on those truths. And then their defense is in the person who is defending them even as they are suffering. And note what Peter says next. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. This is not a warlike, let me tell you why I'm right and you're wrong argument. But rather it's a pleading, a passionate call to know the one who is your Lord and your hope to them. This defending is done out of love for the Lord and for the one who's asking for the reason for your hope. Why do you have hope in the midst of this striving and struggling? Because you're an idiot. How's that going to communicate? It's not going to communicate. Tell me why you have hope in the midst of this diagnosis. Well, obviously, you don't know what you're talking about, and I do. Again, this is not war, this is not an argument. This is you pleading with them and preaching Christ to them. Gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, with no reason to worry or fret about what you are saying or hoping in. And then, of course, things will just be lovely and everybody will live happily ever after, right? The force field kicks in after that. Yeah, right. No. People will still malign you. And treat you harshly. And so what do you do? So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So yeah, after all this, people are still slandering. They're still reviling your good behavior in Christ. And note that, that's not going to stop. And when they do so, and you stick to your gospel guns, they will be put to shame. They don't see you promoting yourself. They don't see you doing evil deeds. Instead, they see you doing good and upright things. They see and hear you declaring the holiness and the lordship of Jesus. They see you being consistent and righteous, and their harsh treatment of you gets them nothing but shame. Oh, the mob might be behind them, and everybody's nodding saying, yeah, crucify him. But everyone looking on sees and knows that you are upright, and they're ashamed even of themselves. Surely this man was the Son of God, said the centurion. And you don't have to defend or justify yourself. It's not about you and how smart you are and how good you are. It's about Jesus as Lord and Jesus as holy. That's what ultimately leads them to shame. Let their shame ambush them. You just honor Christ as Lord in your heart and give them that reason for the hope within you. 
And then watch what happens. Entrusting yourself to your faithful Father who will make all things right in the end. And will you suffer? Very possibly. But that's not so bad, as Peter reiterates here in our last verse. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What a verse. This is another one of those verses that really doesn't need much explanation, right? It's pretty straightforward. Peter ends our passage today, maybe not his whole thought pattern, but our passage today, by pointing out that suffering, listen, is not a sign of God's displeasure. If you are suffering, God ain't mad at you. That's not the reason for your suffering, especially if you're doing righteous deeds, especially if you're pursuing what's good. And I think we go there so quickly. Oh, my goodness, I'm sorry, God, what am I doing wrong? Maybe you're doing right, and that's the cause of your suffering. So suffering's not a sign of God's displeasure, but can be, listen, without a doubt, from what Peter's saying here, your suffering can very well, maybe, possibly, be God's very own will. Your suffering could very well be God's will for you. And that's better than anything else, right? For it's better to suffer for doing good. And again, don't miss the qualifier of doing good as the cause and the basis of the suffering for righteousness sake. And that's better not because it's suffering or even that it's for doing good, but it's better because it's God's will. God's will is best, whatever it might be. That takes a little bit of retinkering up here in our head, especially retinkering in our hearts. Because it doesn't feel like it's best. Bob Coughlin wrote a song called, What Air My God Ordains is Right. And it actually says, What Air? There's no V in there, it's an apostrophe. What Air My God Ordains is Right. And the verse says this Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. And so to Him I leave it all. Let me ask you this question. Is the will of God better than your expectations or your wants or your desires? Again, I think we can say, yeah, yeah, it definitely is but we feel differently in the situation when the diagnosis is not what we want, when the man with the bat is standing at the door and you suffer for what is doing right, for, for doing right. And again, I'm not saying you got sick because you did wrong. Don't hear me say that. But whatever the will of the Lord might be and you suffer and you continue to seek Him and His will, that's better than what you want. If what you want is not that. We've sung in the past, Jesus is better. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. And then this, make my heart believe. The growing, maturing Christian desires the will of God more than the ways of the world or even their own desires, even if it takes some making our hearts believe. Think Jesus in the garden. If there be any way, Take this cup from me. There's his desire, as 
God in the flesh, fully man, truly man, truly God. Truly man is saying, if there's another way, I'd really like to not have to go through this. And there's a whole lot of theological hornet's nest there, what's going on there. But then his statement after that is, yet, not my will, but yours be done. Your will, your desire, your plan is way more important than what I want in the moment. That's a sign of Christ-likeness. That's a sign of maturity. So it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Why? Because it's God's will. Even if we've got to ask Him to help make our hearts believe. And if I do good and God ordains that suffering comes from that, that's better. Better than what? Better than suffering from doing evil, Peter ends with. There's no reward for suffering when you've done evil. Peter had said something similar back when he was talking to servants back in chapter 2. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. It's God's will. Because... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Doing evil or sinning and then suffering as a result is really just a normal thing. There are consequences for our sins. Always. Maybe we don't immediately see them. Maybe we do. There are no rewards for sinning and suffering for it, ever. But if you do good, if you honor God and do His will and then suffer for that, there is grace in the present and rewards in the future for that, for sure. And that, Peter says, and hopefully we agree with, is better. Better than whatever else may come our way or whatever else we desire. It's better. I will do good, and if it causes me to suffer, that's better because it's God's will. A very challenging passage. I would ask you to reconsider it, reread it. Think about the songs we sang this morning when you're going back through it, rereading it, reprocessing it. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for His love is my reward. Mine are tears and mine are sufferings, but Christ is mine forevermore. You are sovereign over us, even what the enemy means for evil. So we'll turn our attention to application. Three S's today. Suffer, strive, and sovereign. That's pretty obvious, right? Those are pretty easy ones to pick out. Suffer, strive, and sovereign. (coughs) Excuse me. First application point is suffer. And it's very clear from other passages that we've looked at in First Peter and today's passage and so many others in the Bible. I almost pshaw it because we say it so much, but it needs to be said from this passage. Salvation is not a ticket out of suffering. Being God's child does not mean you will not suffer. Quite the opposite. It's pretty much... Punching your ticket for persecution. It's pretty much saying you're going to suffer. You are living in the enemy's camp. 
He's not going to sit still and say, oh, hey, that one's not on my side. He's going to arouse people against you who will persecute you. You will offend people when you say that Jesus Christ is holy and that we are sinners and we need a Savior. I talked to somebody the other day in therapy and they shared their faith with somebody that was close to them and it really made them mad, really made the person they shared it with mad. They said, you really offended me by saying that I'm a sinner. And they said, should I not have said that? I said, no, you absolutely should have said that. But they're mad at me. I'm like, you planted seeds, dropped some seeds, let God handle the rest of it. Now, they did reconcile and they're at a better understanding now than they were. But you're asking for persecution when you line up with God and follow His ways. And you better get used to this theme in Peter's writings. It's a dominant theme that you'll hear several more times before we finish his letters. Suffering is a huge part of the Christian life. Now, here's the problem. We hear that and we're like, oh, gone, man. That's a bummer. Nothing but bad when we become Christians and we're just going to suffer. And, and our passage today says, not at all. Because here's the deal. Everybody suffers... All Christians suffer for doing right in some way, shape, or form. But here's the deal. We get to have hope in the midst of our suffering. We know that this suffering is not all that there is. And that there is coming a day when all the striving, all the suffering, all the pain, all the persecution is going to end. And not only that, we know that God's with us in the midst of it. He is near to the brokenhearted. He associates with the lowly. Christ Himself was persecuted. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And He kept entrusting Himself to a faithful Father. And to this you have been called. To suffer as He suffered and also to rejoice in the midst of your sufferings, knowing that you're going to be rewarded for it. And it will one day come to an end. So it's not just, oh great, we got to suffer for the rest of our lives. It's we're going to suffer, and in the midst of it, we have a hope. A solid hope that He is sovereign over us, that He is directing all things, and we'll get to that in the last point, for His glory and for our good. Hope, joy... We get to walk out of the Sanhedrin high-fiving each other because we were counted worthy to be beaten on account of the name of Christ. There's a power that comes through the Holy Spirit within us not to just endure these sufferings, but to have hope and to rejoice in the midst of it. Rejoice and be glad when you suffer for what is doing right. So that's suffer. The second one's a little bit bigger, has a lot of different meanings, and I'll, I'll try to keep it short because we're almost done. Strive. In the midst of our sufferings, how are we to strive? What are we to do? What are we to work towards? And I made the statement earlier, in our sufferings, we don't seek to defend ourselves, vindicate ourselves, escape out the back door so we don't have to go through it. But in the midst of it, Peter calls us here today to defend the hope that we have within us. To stand up in the midst of the persecution... Stephen, and to call the vipers vipers. 
and to call them all to flee from the wrath to come. We get to preach the gospel as we strive in the midst of our sufferings. That's what we're called to. Let me ask you this right now. Something to think about, a question to kind of tack to the wall so that you can keep it in front of you for the rest of the week. If you were to be put on the witness stand to give a defense of the hope that is within you, what would you say right now? Watch the news. It's bleak out there. I would say don't watch the news, actually, is what I would say. It's bleak out there. Trust me. Take my word for it. And we're to have hope in the midst of all this? Insanity? There are people all over the world right now being beaten because they're preaching in the name of Jesus. Are they supposed to stop? No, they're supposed to continue. And they're supposed to have hope in the midst of it. And they have a good defense for the hope that is within them. What would you say if somebody said, tell me why, defend the hope that you have within you right now? What are you saying? What would you say? And our striving in the midst of this is for us to live in and embody what Alistair Begg called, quote, the compelling power of an affection for Jesus Christ. And here's your defense. Why do you have a hope? Because Jesus loves me This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, that's a children's song. Yep, it absolutely is. And it embodies the very core of the hope that is within us. He is Lord. He is holy. That's the hope that I have within myself. Defend that. He is Lord. He is holy. And He loves me. This I know. It's not complicated. This is not about apologetics. This call to give a defense for the hope that is within you is not convincing people that God is real. It's about proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us a hope and changes our hearts away from our natural affections and live a life to show the compelling power of an affection for Jesus Christ. Again, the hope that is within you. Our striving is to work on the heart and our affections, those things that we desire and long for and defend passionately, we strive to externalize what God is doing inside of us. That's how we give a compelling argument, a defense of the hope that is within us. Because we love Jesus so much. And why do we love Jesus so much? We love Him because He first loved us. That's the hope that we have within us. And that's what we are to strive to not just feel and think, but to do, to externalize that internal work and to have our hearts so set on Him as holy and as Lord that nothing can move us from that. That's what we're to strive toward so that we might preach a gospel of hope even to those who are persecuting us. Suffer, strive, and finally, sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is holy. God's will is best. Those truths will never change. So as we suffer in the midst of our strivings, we look to the sovereignty of God, knowing that whatever my Lord ordains is right. How many of us would say, this is not how I would have drawn my life up? 
whatever my Lord ordains is right. God hasn't brought you to this place in your life by accident. He has orchestrated all of eternity to draw you to Himself, to give you new life, and to give you a hope that you would not have had in and of yourselves. He did that. And He's continuing to do that. And He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. And if He sets you with Christ in the heavenlies, He's going to bring you home to glory and conform you perfectly to His image, to His will, even through your sufferings, especially through your sufferings, I would say. In your strivings, cease striving and know that I am God. What can man do to me? God is sovereign. God is for me. God is with me. And God is working His best will for His glory and my good for all eternity. When you're tempted to doubt, when you're tempted to fear, when you're about to give in to the temptation to feel hopeless, remember the sovereignty of God. And don't just resign yourself to it. Resound the glory of it. He is sovereign over our sufferings. He is sovereign in the midst of our strivings. And it is better if you are called to suffer for doing good because it's God's will than to suffer for doing evil or trying to preserve yourself and your own plans. He is sovereign. Let's pray. Father, I'm, if I'm honest with myself and if I'm honest with these people, there are many times I don't believe this. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. My prayer today is for me, for us, for your people, make my heart believe. In the midst of sufferings for doing what is good, in the midst of suffering for doing what is righteous, in the moment when I'm about to despair, God, I ask you that you would make my heart believe. In your sovereignty, that my sufferings and my strivings are not in vain, but that you are doing a work where I will be rewarded and your glory will be on full display for every creature to see through my life. And I'm not the center of your plan, but I get to be a part of your plan. Thank you for Jesus, who is the center of your plan who gave us the model of how to conduct ourselves in the midst of sufferings for doing what is right. For to this we have been called. Make our hearts believe. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, and don't stay neat with us, because you can't.